Hello there. Welcome to Into Deep. This is the third episode already. Uh, it's going to be a good one. At least I hope so. I hope you like it. It's all about Interstellar. And this is truly going to be uh, like we're really going to go into deep. Like truly this time. So buckle up. I promise it's not going to be too long. I've decided to divide it into two different parts because I wrote approximately something like 11 word pages so yeah it's a lot it's a lot but i i think it will be good i hope you will like it so buckle up gonna get going all right interstellar ready set go before we begin spoiler alert this is going to be a very in-depth analysis of the movie so just be aware major major spoilers ahead you have been warned so if you haven't watched it i suggest you go and watch it and then you come back to the episode i promise you it's entirely worth it uh like i said before it's going to be divided into two parts i wrote too much i know but i think something good came out of it so just excuse me you know for a second but um yeah i'm, I'm really really proud of this and uh i hope you like it too It's hard to talk about Interstellar because it might seem a sci-fi movie at first glance, but the more you watch it, the more you realise it is actually a family-based drama must as a sci-fi. The first shot is truly stunning. You see these bookshelves, this dust raining down, a space shuttle in the form of a toy, and this old woman that begins talking. My dad was a farmer, like everybody else back then. But he didn't start that way. The scene then changes. And we don't know it yet, but the entirety of the movie is right in front of our eyes, just in the space of this first two, three minutes. Cooper wakes up suddenly, in the middle of the night, after having had a disturbing dream about an airplane crash. This is how we learn that he had been a pilot before becoming a farmer. Murph, his daughter, is there when he wakes up. I thought you were the ghost, she says. Now she was right all along, but wasn't yet aware of it. We see a beautiful shot of Cooper looking at the cornfield at dawn while the majestic soundtrack composed by Hans Zimmer envelops you like a tired hug. I will not shut up about the soundtrack, as it's one of the most perfect soundtracks I've ever heard, and it touches me deeply to this day, even though I've watched the movie so many times. It never stops. So, corn and dust... These are the main elements about this world. There has been a blight and the corn is one of the few foods left to grow. The first time we see the whole family, it's Cooper, Murph, Tom, which is the other son, and Grandpa, all gathered at the kitchen table for breakfast. Once again, Murph starts talking about the ghost and how it keeps knocking the books down. And it's clear since the beginning that this is a family of science. So ghost talk is not 
welcomed here. But Murph is smart and stubborn, uh, which is a somewhat perfect combination, I guess. And we get the feeling that she won't give up easily. Now, the social commentary in this movie is very strong, and it goes hand in hand with the main family theme. We see a nerd that's suffering. We see people that are suffering. The food is scarce, and worldwide population has decreased drastically. It's a world that lacks hope. The character that we get to see the most at the beginning of the movie is Cooper, the father. We get the feeling that he's a little bit of a smart ass, very clever, very confident, maybe borderline arrogant at times. Definitely self-assured. And Matthew McConaughey is sort of perfect when it comes to playing the borderline arrogant. By the way, if you haven't watched the first season of True Detective, you should definitely go and watch it as well just to understand what kind of actor we're talking about. We soon learned that Murph's name was inspired by Murphy's Law, which states the following, anything that can happen will happen. Or at least this is what Cooper tells Murph. Another way of saying it would be anything bad that can happen will happen. This is where we see a drone fly and we have the first action-packed scene of the movie. And you feel like you couldn't take your eyes off it even if you tried. The shots of the pickup going through the cornfields are incredibly satisfying to watch. And the soundtrack again matches the scene perfectly. You feel as excited as a kid opening gifts on Christmas day. And again, something important is shown to us here as we watch the pickup racing through the fields. Corn, even though it's one of the few foods left to grow, is not nearly as important as science. These people are running through the cornfields with a pickup. So that tells you something. Corn is not nearly as important as science, as curiosity, as discovery. As humans, we do need food, but that's not what keeps us alive, truly. A thirst for learning is curiosity is. So while we watch Cooper, Murph and Tom chasing the drone on the pickup through the cornfields, we get that the bond between Cooper and Murph is especially strong. There's this great love for science that ties them together. A couple of scenes later, we see Coop sitting outside on the porch with Grandad. And he says, it's like we've forgotten who we are, Donald. Explorers, pioneers, not caretakers. So we start to realise at this point how completely out of place Coop feels in this world. He can't accept the fact that he had to abandon his first life, his first job. He can't accept the loss of his wife. He's constantly on the lookout for something, and something he will find, we'll see. When the first corn machines start going haywire, that's when Cooper and Murph begin diving deeper into the ghost situation up in Murph's room. She already believes at this point that the ghost might be trying to contact her through Morse. The way Nolan directed Interstellar, you can feel how important it is for him to make you feel the danger of an earth 
that is not willing to deal with us anymore. The whole sequence comprising the baseball match and the family returning home after a dust storm arises makes you feel so out of breath. Exactly as they feel out of breath, trying to get back into the house as fast as they can. So their home feels like the safest place you could be in. And you have this stark contrast between the two environments. And this begins to melt away when Murph runs up to her room, suddenly remembering that she left her window open. So these two environments start melting into each other. And this also is sort of a, is a message that Nolan wants to give us. The dust that entered Murph's room starts taking weirdly geometrical shapes. And it looks like there's lines in the sand, in the dust. The ghost matters Murph. The enigma of the ghost continues. Coop finds out that the language through which the ghost is communicating is not Morse, but binary. They're coordinates. So he packs his car and tells a very insistent Murph that she can't come with him. But we don't see frustration or anger when he finds her hidden underneath a set of blankets in the front seat. He looks like he's proud of his daughter, of her adventurous spirit, which he probably sees as an extension of himself to a certain degree. They are quite similar, to say the truth, and Murph seems to feel the same connection to her dad. When they discover NASA headquarters, it's like the past welcomes Coop back. A new adventure, the association that he used to fly for, a bunch of strangers with a mission, and also a couple of fundamental questions. Why does NASA have to work in secret? Should space research be shut down when food is scarce and people struggle? What is important? What isn't? This is a movie that isn't afraid of diving into the big philosophical questions and actually does so very eagerly. So at this point, we meet Professor Brand, and he tells us that the corn, much like wheat and potatoes before it, will stop growing as well at some point, very soon. And we have no place on this earth, not anymore. We are now paying for our actions. And this is exactly when NASA comes in. In Professor Brand's words, we're not meant to save the world, we're meant to leave it. And live they did, or at least some of them. NASA sent a few people in space with one precise objective, find a new planet for us to live on. Again, we get the feeling that this had to happen. Cooper found this coordinates. Murph found this coordinates, and they're not random. Something or someone must have put them there. For now, we only know this entity as the ghost. So Cooper now has to face a life-changing decision. Go to space to try and save his kids and the rest of the world from certain extinction, with no certainty of coming back, or remain with his family on Earth. Again, another big philosophical question with no easy answer. We learn that a disturbance of space-time near Saturn is one of the most prominent anomalies NASA has discovered so far. It appeared 48 years before, and it leads to another galaxy. And like Cooper had previously pointed out, there's no habitable planet in our solar system. But again, our protagonist points something else out. A wormhole is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. So the entity we were talking about before must have put it there, or someone else must have. 
Professor Brand explains that there's a plan A and a plan B. Plan A provides safety for the already living people on Earth, so this is of course the preferable solution, while plan B would mean colonizing the new world by bringing there approximately 5,000 fertilized eggs. So Professor Brand would like Cooper to be part of this mission, and the entire objective of this new mission would be to try and make contact with at least one of the 12 people that left for the Lazarus mission, since each one of them had to try and find a new planet to inhabit. There is still a problem, though, the problem of gravity. There's this equation that Professor Brand hasn't been able to solve yet, but we'll get to this later. We get now almost 40 minutes in to one of the most emotionally charged scenes of the whole movie. Cooper is preparing to leave, and Murph cannot bring herself to accept that. He embraces her, and he gives her this watch, similar to the one that he has. And he says that when he'll come back, they'll compare, because time for him will run more slowly out in space. And they might even be the same age when he comes back. The soundtrack elevates everything. It starts very slow, very very unassuming almost, if it's perfectly with the intensity of the scene because it grows and grows and grows until it can't take it anymore. I love you. You hear me. I love you forever. And I'm coming back. One last book falls off a shelf and Coop is out of the room. Merv has thrown the watch to the other side of the room, unable, completely unable to accept what this means. And the look Merv has in her eyes when her dad leaves, while her grandpa stops her from following her dad, is one of the saddest expressions you'll ever see on a human face. It makes absolutely sure to stay pressed into your brain for the rest of the movie, and maybe even longer. And we're in space, or Cooper is alongside his teammates, Dr. Amelia Brandt, which is Professor Brandt's daughter, Romilly, Doyle, and the two Roberts, Tars and Kays. The sudden change of atmosphere, quite literally, by the way, is followed by a musical change from the beautiful, heartbreaking, soul-wrenching theme that accompanied Murph into desperation and Coop into separation. We go straight to silence. There's no middle ground. Only the deafening presence of space in all its infiniteness and glory. I imagine it's also somewhat of a realistic peek into what it probably feels like to be shoot up in space with a few other humans beside you. We are in a liminal space now. You're not in point A anymore, but you haven't got to point B either. And I guess we could argue also that Cooper's and Murph's minds in the movie represent the ultimate liminal space. They're not really where they physically are, but rather engage in this continuous mental connection with each other. They're always looking for each other, 
always not entirely present in their surroundings. And they both want to get to point B, albeit in different ways, hence why Murph cannot get over her dad's decision to leave. But they simply aren't there yet. They occupy for now this liminal space, which is best represented by literal space and Cooper's journey. It's a story of yearning, of wanting, of needing closeness when you can't have it. And as cheesy as it sounds, I know it, it is a story of the power of love. And to be honest, I'm really glad that the love represented here is not a romantic type of love. I don't say this because I want to sound edgy or cool because I enjoy being a cynical piece of shit. I'm just genuinely fed up with mainly seeing romantic love portrayed on screen. And as a daughter myself, this movie touches on some key elements that made me truly connect to it. So, thank you, Nolan. They come up on the Endurance, which is the station they have to dock onto. They get inside and start spinning with it, moving forward towards Saturn. Also, doesn't a closed space shuttle environment remind you of our time in quarantine? Because it does to me. What with Cooper saying we should learn how to talk and Dr. Brand replying and when not to. <laughs> this is something to think about, I think. Now, I feel like I have to say something here. I'm not going to focus too much on the scientific aspect of the movie because I don't have the knowledge required or a full understanding for that matter. So I will talk about some of it, but only what I'm sure I've understood well enough to be able to talk about it. Now, back to the soundtrack. I feel like there's a distinct influence of 2001 Space Odyssey that can be traced back to it. And I mean, it's something that Christopher Nolan has said multiple times on interviews. He hasn't really said it about a soundtrack, but he has said it about the movie, um, which I find interesting because to me it's not necessarily the... Um, it, it's more the soundtrack that reminds me of Space Odyssey rather than the movie. I don't think the movie has anything to do with it, to be honest. And I don't care for comparisons right now. It's not important and it's it would be unfair. But it's definitely interesting to see little bits here and there that connect this particular film with other seminal works that came before. And if anything, it's a very nice homage. And the Interstellar soundtrack is worth so many listenings. And I'm definitely not impartial because this is, in my opinion, a masterpiece in terms of composition. And I'm really glad that Anne Zimmer was able to create something of the kind There's a very important moment in the movie where Professor Brand from Earth sends Cooper and the others a video message. And in this video message, he recites a very famous poem. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The wise man at the end no dark is right, because that words had forked no lightning they do not 
good gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. This poem, Professor Brand reads a very well-known Dylan Thurman's piece. And it's a very clever addition to the movie because it really sums up the motivation at the base of the whole plot. Our protagonists here are people who are not giving up. They are raging against the dying of the light constantly. Without this raging, the mission would have never even been conceived. We see a stunning shot of the spaceship flying close to Saturn. And it's so heartbreaking to see that instead of being mesmerized by the planet, Coop is watching his son's response video, his video message, with tears of joy in his eyes. Again, we are constantly reminded of what's really important here. We also learn that Murph doesn't want to talk to Coop. She hasn't replied to any of his video messages and seems willing to keep it this way. Then we have this very nice little scene of Coop lending, borrowing his MP3 player to Ram so that he too can listen to the crickets chirping. And again, it's a gentle reminder of what's truly important here. The crew is now approaching the wormhole and we have the big simplified typical explanation of how wormholes work. I'm going to be honest here and say that no matter how many times I've heard that explanation before, I cannot fully grasp it. I just cannot comprehend how one can ban space and time. They are such immovable and constant concepts in our lives that I find it almost impossible to step out of our idea of them. And I, I, I guess it's very hard for us humans to envision a world that doesn't work within these very specific parameters. But it's very interesting, nonetheless, to just entertain the possibility. And I also find that the more I stop and think about time and space travel, the less it makes sense in my head. And I've had this conversation with my friends Leon and Moon recently while discussing Dark, the Netflix TV series. And it's a really interesting discussion to have, I can tell you that. It sort of becomes a loophole at some point. But maybe that's why it's so fascinating to begin with. The shot inside the wormhole is just beyond beautiful. The amount of detail is insane and it moves in a way that's very, very hypnotizing. And we hear one of the crew members saying, it's space beyond our three dimensions, which again, it's very hard for us to understand. But it's quite something to see it portrayed that way on screen. So our crew members decide to go down on Miller's planet, which seems to be the most promising. So they go down on it with a ranger. Now we do have relativity here, so time is of utmost importance for this mission, because one hour down on Miller's planet equates to seven years on Earth. It's water where they land, really shallow waters, and it looks like there's mountains in the in the distance. Gravity is at around 130% compared to gravity on Earth. They do find Miller's beacon, but they do not find her. And that's when they're surprised with insanely high waves. We've realized at this point that the mountains we thought we were seeing 
in the distance were not actually mountains, but there were insanely high waves. They do still have to get the recorder though, so Dr. Brand goes for it, followed by Kay's, and this decision will cost them to lose Doyle. The music is loud, up until there isn't any more of it, and they are left there. They have to stay there with the ranger to let it drain. And this means hours, which equates to many years on Earth. It equates to decades. We instantly think about Murph. Now, at this point, we get to hear something that is actually quite useful for us sitting back home watching this difficult movie on time and space travel and physics and whatever. We hear Dr. Brand saying that the only thing that can move across dimensions like time is gravity. Now this is very important for what we're going to find out later on, so just keep it in mind. At this point, another hit of waves is coming. They're still down on Miller's planet. By the way, Romilly um, had stayed back on the Endurance and went into cryosleep. So right now on Miller's planet, we have Dr. Brand, Cooper and Doyle. But Doyle hasn't been able to make it because of the very high waves, because of the decision of Dr. Brand to go and try and get the recorder. So another hit of waves is coming. They managed to escape just in time. And the last shot that we see of the planet is a chilling shot of Doyle laying face down on the water. They managed to go back to the endurance. 23 years, four months and eight days. That's the cost of the maneuver they had to perform on Miller's planet. And Romilly is there to greet them, aged, which means that he didn't really went to cry asleep for long. And again, it's it's a very strange sensation to have to see them go back to the endurance just to find out the insane amount of time that they've lost on that planet. So they go back to the Endurance and Romilly greets them and he tells them that they've got years of messages stored. And this is when finally Cooper sits down to watch them all. And you get to see Cooper's face for something like a solid minute, crying and laughing at the same time while watching videos of his son's life. But we understand that there's nothing from Murph still. We find out that Tom's son has died because of the dust. So the earth keeps on taking back what's hers. And then Tom says, I have to let you go. He's trying to find the strength to let his dad go. Thinking that maybe after all these years, his dad might actually not be coming back after all. And there is such a heartbreaking scene here where Cooper doesn't want this and he holds onto the screen while his son's last message fades to black and then suddenly Murph appears on the screen her first ever message to Cooper and we have an incredible Jessica Chastain here I cannot underline like I will not I will I will never be able to talk about how good I think she is as an actress 
she has the range. She really does. And she says, today I'm the age you were when you left. And at this point, we remember that Coop had promised her he would have been back by the time she was his age. So it's it's quite a heavy moment and we see him in tears, not even trying to hold back, very conscious of the promise that he's broken. And then the scene changes and we have the chance to follow older Murph. She works for NASA now, just like her dad. And she's also, she, she doesn't just work for NASA, she's also working at Professor Brand's equation. But there's something strange going on because the professor keeps avoiding her questions and she starts maybe thinking that there might be something going on. Something, something's not quite right. We're back in space. We learned that our team doesn't have enough fuel for two more travels. They were supposed to go down on Hedman's planet and on Man's planet, and now they have to choose. And for the first time here, something important happens. There's this discourse on love being a dimension that starts. Is Dr. Brand the one to mouth it? while confessing that she's in love with Edmunds and therefore would really like to land on his planet. She says that love is the one thing that we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. And it is cringy, we all agree on that, I think, but it's also an interesting take on the matter. And when we go back to see Murph and Professor Brand who has been hospitalized due to some complications. This is when I think the second part of the movie, we could say that the second part of the movie starts here, more or less. It's interesting to see the dynamic between the professor and Goop's daughter. Because if you think about it, Professor Bren, after all, is a person who offered Cooper a place in the mission. So he is somewhat responsible for having taken Cooper away from Murph, in a sense. So that dynamic reminds me in a sense of one of the defense mechanisms presented in the psychoanalytic theory. And this one is called reaction formation, which basically transforms an emotion into its opposite. So you feel love, it becomes hate, so on and so forth. It's very common. And it feels like it could either be this or Murph just understood at a certain point that it would have been useful to work with the professor in the hope of bringing her father back. Either way, when we see the scene, we can clearly see that there's a mix of different deep feelings that tie Murph to the professor and vice versa. Now we spiral into another truly heartbreaking moment in the movie. Professor Bren probably feeling like this is his last chance to tell Murph the truth spits out in a moment of shattering honesty that there was never a real need for Coop to actually come back from the mission. And Murph cannot believe it. And once again, she's confronted with the form of loss, in a sense, a, a betrayal of trust. So plan A, the equation, nothing of that was real. There was never a plan to save the people on Earth. There was only plan B the plan to create a new colony somewhere else in the universe. Did my father know? 
Martha Smurf, did he leave me? And then Merv tries to hold on to the professor desperately. The theme of leaving, of abandonment is so persistent in the movie and I think it's probably the main reason it resonated so much with people in the first place. So in this moment, we see Professor Brand trying to hold on to Dear Life. He repeats part of the Dylan Thomas poem and then he dies. At this point, we have this beautiful shot of the spaceship, the ranger, brushing against what looks like a nice cloud. So we're back in space. And it's one of those many, many beautiful shots of the movie where no one is able to masterfully play with your senses in a weird way because you see clouds, but you hear the unexpected sound of ice breaking while the ranger brushes against it. And they they have arrived. That That's what it means. They've arrived on Dr. Mann's planet, the one that had the most promising data. And we can see that Dr. Brand's anger at Cooper for having been thoroughly scientific and having decided to go down on Mann's planet instead of Edmund's is still pretty palpable. She knows, though, that Cooper was right. And we did it. We got to the end of the first part of the Interstellar episode. Thank you so much if you've listened all the way through. I'm really grateful. I hope you liked it. And I'll be releasing the second part next week. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much. See you next week.